Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for everybody who loves the Bible. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Woo! It's our hundredth episode! <laughs> woo woo woo! <laughs> Uh, and that's that's the truth. It really is. We are at our 100th episode of First Reading. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, well, it's so funny to go back and think to those first conversations where we sit down and it's just like, hey, Tim, I've been thinking about this. And to go from I've been thinking about this to 100 episodes and so many conversations with amazing scholars is just it's kind of phenomenal. Yeah. And, you know, congratulations, Rachel. I think this is uh, an accomplishment worth celebrating. Yeah, well, congratulations to you, too, Tim. <laughs> and I have to say, I've, I've learned so much through the process oh, yeah. of doing this along the way. I'm, I am a much yeah. better biblical scholar and um, in a way mm -hmm. sort of biblical theologian because mm -hmm. of um, having this sort of weekly interaction with you and with our guests. So in, a, in addition to feeling proud, I'm also really grateful to you and, and to everybody that's been a part of this. This has been really cool. Yeah, I, that, that resonates with me a lot. Another way to kind of mark the moment, we had a whole bunch of our past guests reach out with messages of congratulations on our 100th episode, and we've put those together in a kind of video montage that you can see on our website or our Facebook page. So take a couple minutes and check that out. It's really cool. Anyway, Rachel, congratulations on 100, and here's to many, many more. Yeah, cheers <laughs> to our Zoom conversation. Yes, yes. I should have I yeah. uh, poured us some bourbon or something. You, what we thought we would do with this uh, 100th episode of First Reading is uh, take a few minutes to sort of look back and, and remember some of the, our favorite moments, some of the highlights mm. of our first 100 episodes. So we want to invite you all, dear listeners, into that celebration as well. And we'll be doing that in a few minutes. But first, we didn't want to leave you in the lurch with our lectionary text for January 24th, 2021, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. Jonah 3, 1 to 5, and verse 10. We also didn't want to skip this because we both love Jonah so much. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that we didn't want to just brush text. it aside in our festivities. So um, we want to just give a few brief thoughts about this, this text in Jonah um, that might be helpful to you as you're preparing a sermon. And to be quite honest, if you've got any flexibility in your service, read the whole book. I mean, it is it is a, a short read. It is four chapters, and they are all pretty darn short chapters as well. Um, so reading the whole thing gives you the flexibility to preach on kind of whatever you want in the book of Jonah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that beginning of the chapter three is a great section, too. But I think that'd be the first suggestion I would give is just read the whole thing to your folks. Yeah, I mean, it is it's presented as a kind of short story. And so if you just take mm -hmm. one, you know, little handful of verses out short stories kind of hold together and you don't want to mm -hmm. um, twist the text by by ignoring kind of the flow of the whole thing. Or you could make like a four-part series out of it. Oh, look at you. Okay, so kind of like a leading up to transfiguration sort of a thing? Yeah, you could do it that way or just sort of tuck it, you know, away as something that you could pull out when you have a few weeks where you wanted yeah. to devote to, to uh, a book. Jonah's a great one to sort of walk through bit by bit. Um, and it's so short, like a, like a three or four week series would be really great. Well, since we don't likely have three to four weeks in our back pocket right now, but just this one week on Jonah three, um, uh, do you have anything you'd want to throw out there for 
preaching ideas or pitfalls, Tim? Yeah, yeah. I mean, here, here's my thing. I've, I've done a little bit of research and work in Jonah, and there are lots of ways to read the book of Jonah. <laughs> so I, I would want to start out by saying I don't think that my way is the only way to read Jonah. Oh, that's very Bactinian of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so so I sort of read Jonah in the tradition of sort of half serious, half comical stories that were mm. told in the ancient world as kind of a release valve for the experience mm. of life in a world where, where things just don't make sense, or your expectations of cause and effect, of reward for good and punishment for evil, of a God who, whose actions are predictable and reliable, all of that seems to fall apart. Stories like Jonah give us some language to say that for all the, the beauty and order in the world, it's also baffling <laughs> and an absurd mm. place to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that absurdity is really an aspect of it, isn't it? It is. And Jonah's an absurd story. <laughs> so that's kind of my, my sense of the book as a whole, is that it, it gives us that language to talk about life in a world that doesn't make sense at all, which makes it a really relevant story um, yeah. to what we're experiencing now in this world that's mm -hmm. so absurd. So um, I, I do have a couple thoughts on this particular moment in the story in, in chapter three. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do want to focus in on that for a sermon, I would maybe talk about the way that Jonah's prophecy, which is only five words in Hebrew, <laughs> <laughs> another 40 days and Nineveh is overturned. That's all he says. That's his <laughs> whole prophetic message. And you contrast that with like how extreme the Ninevites response to it is mm -hmm. with fasting mm -hmm. and sackcloth all the way from the king to their like, yeah, even the animals put on sackcloth. Make the, make the animals repent. <laughs> and in that way, like Jonah's, Jonah's prophecy is given so begrudgingly in this book. Like, <laughs> like, like when one of your you force one of your kids to apologize to their sibling for yeah. something they've done, it's like sorry. Yeah, absolutely. With all the love in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so Jonah is like the picture of grudging prophecy. And in by contrast, Nineveh is the picture of voluntary compliance. Mm -hmm. Like they just um they hear these five ambiguous words and they're like, let's let's change everything right, right. now. Yeah, it doesn't even say, Jonah doesn't even bother to say how it shall be overthrown or that this is a message from God. But somehow the, the Ninevites pick up that this is a divine prophecy, maybe because he's covered in whale puke. I don't know. <laughs> it could be a message that comes both uh, auditorily and uh, fragrantly. It's, it's pungent. It's pungent in many ways. A pungent prophecy, yes. Hmm. It would be easy to make this story and especially this moment in the story sort of a moralistic message about repentance, mm. um, which is kind of where I think the RCL's going with it in kind mm. of highlighting this moment of this picture of the repentance of the Ninevites. Yeah. But what the lectionary jumps over is what I think is probably the most important phrase in the whole book in chapter three which is verse nine. See, they jump from mm -hmm. verse five to verse 10. But verse mm -hmm. nine is that moment where the, yeah. the king of the Ninevites says, let's, let's change our ways because who knows? And there's that, yeah. that Hebrew phrase, mi odea, yeah. which is a great theological phrase to learn. Mi odea. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I, think, I think that's the key to the whole book, actually, that... Those who have their doctrine all worked out have God in a box. 
and they need to let God be God because who knows? Mm. Who knows? In an absurd world where nothing's predictable, who knows? I think that's kind of the message of Jonah in a way. I think you're right too. I I think that that bears out that idea of who knows and absurdity bears out in the the genre that I see Jonah pulling from, which is of course the genre of prophecy and prophets. Um, You know, Jonah isn't necessarily named as a prophet, but the first words of the book are the prophetic formula where um, you know, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amitai, saying that's a prophetic formula that signals that God is is anointing someone as prophet in that moment as the word comes to them. And and you're right, Jonah hates it. I mean, Jonah <laughs> hates this. He he despises what God is asking him to do. And historical context can be helpful in helping people understand not only why Jonah despises it so much, but again, another layer of absurdity that this book is putting forth. And that historical context is who were the Ninevites? Yeah, Nineveh was the, the capital of Assyria, which which was the empire that conquered the northern kingdom. Yep, and then it became a part of Babylon mm-hmm. once Babylon conquered Assyria. So it is like the encapsulation of the enemy. Yes. It's the people you hate. It's the people who have oppressed you, who have made your life miserable, who have taken everything away from you. And it's that city that God calls great Mm -hmm. and wants to save in the book of Jonah. It's, It's kind of this really interesting, great story about how we react when God wants to give mercy to those whom we hate. Mm -hmm. And how does that affect our lives? And how does that affect... um, you know, us. I mean, it eats away at Jonah. Interestingly enough, there's only like nine places in the Hebrew Bible where someone really comes close to saying to God, I'm mad at you. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them in Jonah 4. Jonah burns with anger and God sees it. And it's this really, really interesting line uh, in verse 4 of chapter 4. This is one of the reasons I want people to read this whole thing. But God replied, Ha-he-tev and it's hard to translate, but what it could be is, is it right for you to burn with anger? But it also could be, is it good? Yeah. And literally, is it good for you? Does it do you any good? <laughs> yeah, to be so consumed by your anger that I choose to be merciful. Now, of course, this story is going to read very different in a community that is uh, perhaps a minority community that has experienced real oppression from systemic racism, from white privilege, from all these sorts of things. It's also going to read real different in a white community who's thinking about these concepts, perhaps not from that same situation of oppression. So know your audience when you preach this, but it can be a really strong sermon material for how it affects you when God wants to show love and mercy to that person that you hate. Mm -hmm. See, what what I love about the portrayal of God and Jonah is just how unpredictable God is here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that this is a God that you actually have to relate to, to know. Yeah, yeah. That this nice. God isn't a sort of cosmic vending machine that when you push the right buttons, put in the right change, the response that you're looking for comes out. Mm. But that this is a God who surprises you by showing mercy to your enemies. <laughs> yeah. Mio Dea. Mio Dea. Who knows? Well, fun. Well, preachers, we hope that's at least a little bit of help for this week. Um, 
We are excited to talk through some of our favorite moments of the uh, podcast so far. So if you've got a few minutes, listen with us. We're going to um, go from the the sublime to the uh, silly, because we'll also <laughs> pull up a couple of episodes where we both embarrass ourselves. And first up, we have a moment uh, that's one of your favorite moments, I believe, Tim, correct? Yeah, and and a bit embarrassing, too. <laughs> nice. That works out really well. <laughs> Way back when we had Dr. Vanessa Lovelace as a guest on the podcast. And Dr. Lovelace is uh, just a fantastic scholar and a real sort of pioneering womanist scholar. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had a little bit of skepticism about bringing a womanist lens to the passages that we were looking at. And I, I loved sort of being put in my place in this, <laughs> in this little clip here. You were talking earlier about how when you bring a womanist lens to the scriptures, there are certain passages that sort of leap off the page. I don't think of womanist uh, categories when I come to a text like this, but I wonder, is there a way to look at a text like this that has some of those interpretive sensibilities built into to our reading? Yes. <laughs> the, so what resonated, I don't even think I got past the first verse, um, and immediately what resonated was Exodus. Mm -hmm. um, I went straight to Exodus 15 and to the uh, wilderness experience. So all of that language around um, both um, literally, I, by literally I mean the Exodus narrative, but how much the prophets also use that metaphorically to represent the exile, to speak of the exile. Mm -hmm. um, and so oftentimes the exile was a second exodus. Mm -hmm. It was a second wilderness experience. Um, and so uh, when they re talked about the uh, making a road through the sea mm -hmm. and the horse uh, uh, and a path through mighty waters who destroyed chariots and horses, went immediately, well, you know, to Exodus 14 first, yeah. um, and Pharaoh's um, army and his chariots and horses being drowned in the Reed Sea. Um, and then you get to the end of the, um, the last verse in 21, and what is the response to God's deliverance? God's salvation is praise. Mm -hmm. And wh who usually did the praise? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, with yeah. the women. Yeah. <laughs> and so Miriam and her uh, dancers and singers and antiphonal song with their hand drums out there um, celebrating this mighty warrior, um, the divine warrior in this instance, um, that, that immediately for me would have been a womanist move mm -hmm. to uh, bring in Miriam into the picture. Yeah, I had not even thought of bringing Miriam into the picture. Mm -hmm. That's a really great insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I loved, um, this, is, this is exactly the type of way that this podcast has benefited me so much, where, where mm -hmm. perspectives that I would have not brought to texts all of a sudden come alive in new ways. And so it's mm -hmm. been such an eye-opening experience for me. And, and it helps to put me on my place every once in a while. <laughs> well, it's funny to hear, too, because this was an Isaiah text, right? Mm -hmm. This was Isaiah uh, 43. And it was so interesting to hear her say, actually, that was the the very first thing that occurred to her in reading the text. Yeah. I mean, it was just such a such a joy to to get to see the text through someone else's eyes for a minute, especially really deep eyes, if you know what I mm -hmm. mean. Definitely. OK, so that was fun. Um, how about you, Rachel? What's what's a highlight that we could listen to for for you? 
Well, one of the things I've loved about this podcast is learning from the scholars, especially on um, Hebrew words that they've done deep study on that I haven't had a chance to do or just don't understand. Um, And one of the times that that really came clear for me was when we were looking at Genesis 22 with Dr. Ethan Schwartz, and we were talking about this word testing, nasa in Hebrew, and and what it means, and maybe what it means depending on who's saying it, even or to whom. So, so this is one of my favorite moments. Goes up because it's true that when the word nasa is used with Israel as the subject, um, and they are testing God, right? It's it it's usually in the sense of like a, a, re- a rebellion, right? So you have, um, um, so the, yeah. so the, so that's the, that's the, the sort of folk, uh, etiology, the, the, the source of the name of the, pl- of the place Massa, right? In the mm-hmm. pair Massa and Merivah, right? That this is one of these places where Israel was rebellious and therefore kind of tested God as if in the sense of like test testing, like, are you really God? Like, are you really powerful enough? Right? Like, yeah. like, I like, Oh, yeah, I love this because it's not this idea of like let's test God to see what God's going to do, but it's almost this more idea of like let's we're trying God's patience of like testing God's patience there, right? Yeah, I like I think you could literally translate it almost like they're trolling God. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that's um you know that that that's I think a good colloquial approximation. Um awesome. but what's interesting is that the the word nasa when God is the subject is a lot more complicated and if you situate this story of the Akedah as part of this E document, then it's part of the same overall narrative as the the main frame of uh, of the of the Sinai story. You actually also have this 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 word uh, this word Nasa, um, and uh, specifically, uh, let me let me see if just quickly here I. I'll, I'll read the uh, I'll read the JPS translation here. Uh, Moses answered the people. This is after um, the, after the Decalogue, after the fire and the mount. Right. So it says all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the blare of the horn, the mountain smoking, um, and the, basically the people freak out um, and they're like, uh, Moses, you go talk to this God. He's you know, we're gonna die. We don't want to die. Uh, and then Moses <laughs> Moses says, be not afraid. For God has come only in order to test you. That's the JPS translation. Levavur nasot etchem, and in order that the fear of Him, yirato, so from yirah, the fear of Him mm-hmm. may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. So this is a, an idea I first saw suggested. I don't know if this is the first time it was actually ever suggested, but that I know from an article um, by the uh, Jewish biblical scholar uh, Moshe Greenberg from, uh, looks like the date I have here is uh, 1960, a journal of biblical literature article from 1960, where he talks about the word nasa in this uh, Elohistic um, revelation story. And he actually says that it doesn't mean test. Greenberg actually argues that there's a more basic meaning of this root, this Hebrew verbal root nasa. Uh, nasa factative uh, um, is, uh, <laughs> it, it, forget about it, is associated with verbs of seeing knowing and learning its usage is uh basically give x experience of give someone experience of so this idea of like um of of facilitating an experience in some way um and actually it's interesting because experience the english word experience uh actually its latin etymology is from the latin word for to try so it actually well, think about like the word experiment, right, in English. Oh, so, sure. So it actually connects, uh, even etymologically, there's a, there's a parallel in English 
um, because of Latin between the, between testing and experience. Um, and I actually think that because these are, are both part of this e-source, it's very tempting to try to understand and God put Abraham to the test in Genesis 22 in terms of actually this idea of facilitating an experience, right? Wow. And it, and, and what, what's also really interesting- uh, I could just, I could just listen. I mean, I just remember that conversation feeling like I was just sitting at the feet of this scholar being like, teach me more. This is amazing. <laughs> First of all, calling trolling God. Can we just all use that in a sermon at some point or a Facebook post? Because <laughs> right, that's right. just an amazing idea. Uh, but then also this idea that God's testing of us is not to try our faith or to see how we're doing, but to give us an experience of of divine, of divinity that can somehow then ground our faith moving forward. I mean, that's just a it's a revolutionary idea that I, I really hope gets put out there because I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and really, that was a, a classic first reading example of the ways that oh. that paying attention to Hebrew really opens up some some texts for us. Yeah. Do you, do you have any moments of where you felt like you you learned something in a way that's kind of stuck with you since you've listened or heard? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I remember when we had uh, Dr. Amanda Mbuvi as a guest and we were talking together about Exodus 24 when uh, Moses and the elders go up on the mountain and sort of commune with God there. Uh, she had an insight that really stuck with me. Let me play it for you. Okay. There's a lot of language in this text about encountering and experiencing God's presence in a way that provokes a reaction. Yes, and I think the the spectacle aspect of this passage is really important. And I think that might be one thing people would gain from spending some time with this as opposed to just immediately going for the transfiguration or just using this as pointing to the transfiguration and not really doing anything more. Because this text really emphasizes that even in the end, when it's just kind of God and Moses, that it's still all the people watching, that it's something that everyone's part of in these different ways. It's not just kind of an isolated encounter. And I think that's really helpful because I think sometimes when for us as readers, we sort of overestimate our role and we're not Moses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. at the bottom of the mountain and, you know, we're getting to hear that perspective, but we sort of put ourselves a little too close to the center. And I think it can be helpful to kind of realize the layers of mediation in some of these situations. Yeah, I think that's right on. Oh, that, that's, that's helped me so much. I've, I've taken that little insight in that one passage, and that's, that's been something that I've applied in lots of the texts that we've looked at, even on the podcast, where I just have that sort of, I check that gut reaction to identify immediately with like the hero of the story and think, <laughs> you know, where am I really in this? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm part of the people. Maybe I'm meant to see yeah, this as yeah. part of the people. And there's, a, there's also a, a strong communal sense to that, too that I think is really helpful for congregations, since we're talking about preaching mostly here, where it's not just about individual discipleship, but about how we function as a community. So in these stories, kind of paying attention to where are the people and what are the people doing and what's their role in the story, I've been able to transport that insight to a lot of different passages. That's a great insight. And I think it actually really helps for those who want to preach the New Testament too. Yeah, especially like in the Gospels, reading reading those stories um, with the disciples as our eyes and ears in the yeah. story is nice. such a helpful hermeneutic. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was another moment there with Dr. Mbuvi um, that I thought was just sort of a, a generalized insight 
about reading the Old Testament as Christian scripture. I, I, let me play that and see if that's also something that resonates as sort of a highlight for us. What, what else would either of you have to say about either that or other pitfalls that you would recognize in this text? I, I think related to what you're just saying, I, it's something I'm really seeing increasingly with students. They don't know how to read the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Um, not at all, not at all. And so there's, um, I'll see if this makes any sense, but it's, if you think of someone who's not familiar with the word Kleenex and they say, what is Kleenex? And you say, oh, Kleenex is a tissue. Okay, well, now you've equated Kleenex and tissue, but you don't know any more about the thing than you did before. You've just kind of, you know, you have two names for it. You haven't uh -huh. actually said anything. And I think that's kind of what they do with some of the connections to the New Testament. They're like, oh, that's in the Gospels. And then they're done. But they're not really thinking about, well, does this have any meaning behind it that actually deepens the meanings when things are invoked in the New Testament? So, for example, when I was in high school, um, somebody we know, um, kind of someone in my friend circle named Hart, brought this other person, John, to a party. And so every time we saw him again, we'd call him John Hart's friend to distinguish them from all the other Johns we know. Like that was his name, John Hart's friend. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> but this person, John, had his own life. You know, his whole existence was not circumscribed by being a friend. That's just how we came to know him. And I think a lot of time for Christians who kind of come to all this stuff through Jesus, everything is just, oh, well, this is like Jesus, or this says Jesus is coming, or this talks about something that will happen to Jesus. But what's lost in all of that is that these texts actually mean something and are contributing something and are actually saying something about who Jesus is, not just the fact of Jesus. And so when, you know, when these connections are happening, it's not just saying Jesus is coming, here's Jesus, but it's, it's explaining who Jesus is because these things already have meaning. The authority of these texts is giving authority to Jesus and kind of understanding that makes it do more than just be an equivalent. That's about as succinct an explanation of reading the Old Testament as Christian scripture as I've heard. <laughs> And this podcast, like, dear listeners, you couldn't see me, but there were so many times where I was like waving my hand at Tim through Zoom as we're listening to this being like, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. I mean, it's just, it's a perfect encapsulation of it. It's not necessary. I mean, yeah, I just, yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. So great. Later this year, our plan is to do a little bit of um, reading New Testament texts in light of their Old Testament resonances. And yeah. that's exactly the kind of insights we're going to try to uh, share with you all is not just how Old Testament texts predict or, you know, mention something that could be connected to Jesus, but how these parts of our Christian scripture talk to each other. I'm excited for that. <laughs> Me too. <clears throat> so, so there's a number of things that happen um, on a podcast even when you have the editing ability um, that are embarrassing. And one of my favorites is uh, when I was talking about Genesis 12 and I got really, really excited and I end up sounding slightly demon possessed for a couple of seconds. Um, so we can roll that one just for a laugh if you want. But in order that the world might be saved through him. We have that promise all the way back here in Genesis. And here's my thing. I say this all the time, and I really mean it. There is nothing in the New Testament 
that does not have roots in the Hebrew scriptures. Even I would say the resurrection of Jesus Christ has its roots in the God of the Old Testament because, spoiler alert, it's the same deity. (laughs) And here in Genesis 12, we have the roots, I would say, of John 3, 16 to 17. And that could be a really wonderful sermon as well. Yeah, it could be. Just don't sound like you're a demon-possessed person while you're preaching it. (laughs) Sort of a golem type thing, isn't it? (laughs) My precious. (laughs) The same deity, precious. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's a fun one. (laughs) All right. Well, I should should put myself out there in, uh, in an embarrassing moment, too. When uh, when we had uh, my dear friend, Dr. Johanna Boss on, uh, we have a fun relationship uh, going back to when I was a TA in her seminary courses. So she is uh, she speaks somewhat uh, with so a familiar hard. tone. It's, it's hard because it's so rich and you can you always feel, mm. oh, I've said that, but I left that out and I've said that and I left that out. And how, how do you get uh, wrap your arms around this enormous text filled with all kinds mm-hmm. of things right yeah. and you can you can't so that's right. fine which is you also know. a hopeful thing because we know that this is a, a corpus that we'll never be able to exhaust exactly sweetie and for you too this is also a hopeful thing because <laughs> i can promise you you will never get bored with it <laughs> i have not ever been bored with it and i've occupied yeah. myself with it for a long time i'm never bored with the bible <laughs> <laughs> Well, we could we could uh, talk about and preach about this text for years, as we've said, but we are kind of coming to the end of our time here. All right, sweetheart. So uh, this is a good place where we could wrap up our conversation today. Anytime that Tim is called sweetheart, it's a good place to wrap up the conversation. <laughs> well, Johanna. Oh my been... gosh, I forgot she did it twice. <laughs> I have to be honest, though. I, I wear that title as a badge of, of honor. Absolutely. You should. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, maybe uh, maybe we can do one more highlight here to kind of wrap us up. Where, where do you think we should go? Well, I'd love to to hear a little bit from one of my favorite uh, professors, Dr. Carol Newsom. She is a, not only brilliant, but she always has this eye and ear to the ground for the pastoral moments. Um, so she's got kind of an inherently clear understanding of how what the Old Testament is saying can relate to what we're going through today. Um, And she had a great moment like that when we were talking through Jeremiah. But instead, as we were talking about earlier, I think this one is about that. how, How do you live in the face of the certainty in which your whole world is about to fall apart? And it looks like it is about to fall apart so decisively. The one sort of obvious response to it would just be just nihilism, just giving up, just entering into despair. And it's really hard to see why that's not the end point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about thinking, well, now what are some circumstances like that? And I was thinking, what about a family in which you know that a member of the family has a terminal disease? And you have to live with that for a number of months before it even happens. Mm -hmm. And so everybody knows that life as we know it is just about to end. 
decisively, and our family is about to be torn apart. And a passage like this doesn't say, oh no, oh no, a miracle is going to happen and nothing is going to go wrong with your life. But instead, it points us to that hard business of, no, you really are going to go through a lot of suffering. And you are going to lose everything that feels normal. You are going to lose everything that feels like what holds it together. But this little ritual that we are doing, this little putting aside of taking of something right now that is a normal activity, and we're going to put it in a safe place because somehow on the other side of this, a long time from now, but sometime on the other side of that, this family is also going to once again begin to laugh, uh, begin to do things that feel ordinary, uh, are going to, not without, not forgetting what has been lost, but in a sense of honoring it by saying, we now do again those things that we did when life was whole. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a strong message from this passage. Oh man, <clears throat> I can't I can't listen to that without getting choked up. I mean, that was pre COVID. Yeah, and, and it just resonates so so much now as a message of hope in a time when our world is experiencing so much chaos and so much trauma. That there's a future out there, even not not minimizing what we're experiencing now. But letting us know that as surely as we're going through that now, there's a future ahead of us as well. Yeah, it's it's that really rare kind of hope that's offered from someone who's been through it before. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's not a it's not a fluffy hope. It's not a thin hope. It's a it's a gritty hope um, because it says, like she said, you know, yeah, things are going to change. And yeah, this is going to hurt and it's going to hurt for a while. And at the same time, yeah, there's going to come a point beyond this hurt. Holy smokes, what a word of hope for the moment yeah. right now. And as as wonderful as Carol's insight is into that moment in Scripture, I love the way that she's able to point back to the text. That it's not just her, this isn't her wisdom on its own yeah. or her insight on its own. But this is wisdom that comes from these ancient texts yeah. that still speak to us as God's word. And that's really what we're about in this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. especially these words from the Old Testament that are so often written off as just being yeah. part of what's old and irrelevant now, that they're just so full and rich and have such helpful, meaningful, life-giving content to them. And it's been a joy to be a partner with you all and in exploring that together. So on this 100th episode anniversary of First Reading, uh, thank you to you listeners. We're so grateful for you and to be able to do this with you. You have our prayers as you go out and preach this week as all weeks. Well, thanks so much for uh, strolling along with us on a few highlights, uh, our favorite moments of these last 100 episodes. And we hope that you'll stick with us for the next hundred and maybe the hundred after that. Who knows? Mio Dea. Mio Dea. Mio Dea. <laughs> uh, as always, we want to point you to where you can find us, firstreadingpodcast.com, as well as our Facebook page. We'd love to interact with you about the podcast. 
hear some of your highlights perhaps, or maybe lowlights. Maybe you have feedback for us that can help us improve the podcast for our next 100 episodes. Dear Tim and Rachel, don't sound demon possessed. <laughs> uh, well, until next time, dear listeners, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching. Thanks for listening. <laughs>